Well, good morning and welcome. If I haven't got to meet you yet, my name is Travis Bowles, and I am a church planning resident here at Redeemer, and we are prayerfully working towards planning a church in Cyprus with a a good, uh, solid team. This morning, we will be looking at the challenging parable of the dishonest manager found in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. So if you're joining us here for the first time, Luke is the third gospel account. It's about three quarters of the way through your pew Bible if you pull one out. And it's really a sort of like a biography of Jesus's public ministry and his life. And Jesus was known for teaching using parables. And parables are these short, sometimes short, sometimes they're longer, but there are these word pictures and stories that use everyday things to, to really teach spiritual truths to us. And parables seem to pull you in because most of the time the meaning or the spiritual lesson is not always just readily available and just obvious for us. And so once you kind of hold it up and the the parable clicks, all of a sudden it's sticky and it gets stuck in your your head and your mind and in your heart. Now the parable of the dishonest manager is challenging and it's shocking because it has some real profound twists and turns. It's even a bit confusing because most of Jesus' parables have a clear-cut good guy with heroic qualities. And this parable centers around this dishonest manager who is really wicked. He's even sort of more of like a anti-hero, one who doesn't have your traditional heroic qualities such as honesty and courage. And what makes this parable so unique is that on face value, it seems to praise this manager. And so it leaves you asking, what is going on here? But when it clicks, I think it'll make sense given its relation to the previous parables with the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son. So this is the beauty of expositional preaching or sequentially preaching through the Bible. Uh, I would have rather have just told uh, Pastor Kevin, I'll I'll pass on this one. This one's pretty challenging. Um, But with expositional preaching, you can't run from difficult passages. So this morning, let's go to the Lord and prayer and ask for some wisdom. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for even hard passages, uh, hard and difficult parables, Lord, uh, that they are They're sufficient for ministry. They're sufficient for building us up and equipping the saints. That even in the hard passages, you have lessons for us. And I pray, Lord, that they they correct us and they encourage us. So Lord, we ask for wisdom and discernment as we open your word this morning. And please just help us just apply to our lives. We ask all these things through Jesus. Amen. So this parable begins really in the first two verses and it sets the scene for us. It says, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. So at the very beginning of this verse, we see who the audience is that this parable is directed to. We have the disciples, and then at the very end, at verse 14, we see that the Pharisees are also present in this audience he's given this parable to. 
Jesus then sets up the parable and starts to paint the scene and he begins to introduce characters. And the first character that we encounter is this faceless and nameless rich man. We don't know much about him, but we do know that he is wealthy because he doesn't have to get his hands dirty and he has someone else to look after his business and his accounts. And you know you've made it when you have someone else to manage your business for you. And so this is what the rich man did. We don't know what type of business exactly he was in, though it's probably gonna be agricultural. He might've been like a wealthy landowner who had indentured servants who worked for him and they would pay him with crops, such as the oil we see in verse six and the wheat we see in verse seven. And then the next character we meet in the parable is the manager, or some of your versions will say the steward. And the entire parable centers around the actions of this man who was hired to look after the rich man's business and his accounts and his profits. This man is similar to Joseph in the book of Genesis when he managed Potiphar's estate. If you remember the story in Genesis 39.6, it's that Potiphar left everything in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything. The manager in this parable had that type of authority, but unlike Joseph, this manager was not honest, he wasn't trustworthy, and he wasn't faithful. In verse eight, the ESV calls the main character in this parable the dishonest manager. And all of the translations pretty much use a negative adjective to describe this manager. So for example, the King James Version uses the unjust steward. My personal favorite though is in the NLT. The NLT calls him the dishonest rascal. The manager and his actions really start to reveal that this guy really was unethical, corrupt, lazy, and the list goes on. His character is really reflected in his actions and behavior throughout the parable. And so the tension is then brought into the story. Someone brings credible charges against the corrupt manager that he was wasting his possessions. Once again, we're not told exactly how he was wasting those possessions, but he was. And so he calls the manager in and he tells him to turn in his account. So in modern business lingo, he would have been terminated from employment or as HR would put it, he was axed. Wait, no, that's not how HR says it. Um, full, and so he was axed, he was, he was terminated, and a full audit of his managerial conduct and accounting was ordered. So then we get to look into the mind of this corrupt manager in verse three. Verse three says, and the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. So notice the manager, he doesn't make a defense. He doesn't try to explain himself. He doesn't even try to blame others, weather conditions, the soil, the farmers. No, verse three might as well be a full admission of guilt. The charges against him are true. And the manager knows that the inevitable is coming. So the manager begins to plot and strategize. He's motivated, but he's not motivated to work. and He's not motivated to make things right. Instead, he says, I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. Now it's doubtful that he's actually not strong enough to do manual labor, right? Everybody knows that if you work on a farm long enough, you will become strong. So I think his apprehension towards manual labor is probably tied to the second concern he has. The manager says, I am ashamed to beg. The manager does not wanna beg out of pride and I'm sure that he probably doesn't want to dig out of pride. And so as usual, 
Corrupt actions then follow a corrupt heart. The corrupt manager then comes up with a plan in verses four through seven. And once again, we get to eavesdrop on his thoughts. It says, I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. So instead of coming clean, instead of admitting fault, instead of choosing the hard right over the easy wrong, he decides he's going to cook the books and decides he's gonna cheat his boss out of even more of his money. And so notice he has to ask the debtors how much they owe, further emphasizing the fact that he truly was wasting his master's resources. So now the first guy he gives this steep discount to, 50% off. Now the second guy, I gotta look at my notes here. I don't math very well, uh, 20%. He gives him 20% off. Now, I am not an expert in first, the first century agricultural market economy in Palestine, but this seems like quite the discount he's cutting here. And he decides that, hey, he's going to defraud and steal more money from his bosses. And with that money he's defrauded, he's gonna use that money to win friends, to purchase influence, to make and purchase favors. So that way when he's cast out from underneath the rich man's umbrella, he will have a place to lay his head and a roof over his head. This is the very definition of setting up a golden parachute. And so in a way, those farmers are also made accomplices. They're also complicit in this fraud that he's doing and now they're gonna be under duress to provide for him later on. And surprisingly, Jesus is using the actions of this corrupt manager to teach us a spiritual lesson. All right, Jesus, you have our attention. So what is the point here? What is the spiritual lesson? So then in verse eight, he begins to explain the spiritual truth behind the parable. It says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What a twist. You could easily imagine this in a more modern setting. You have a hedge fund manager or a day trader who squanders the, the client's money, right? Or squanders his, the day trading firm's money. And so the CEO comes and terminates him. And so he's got his cardboard box and he's on his way out the office. And he's got his favorite coffee mug. And on the way out, he's working deals with all the debtors of the company. And the CEO is up in a corner office drinking his latte. And when he finds out, he comes to him and says, touche, you've turned your termination into a quite the nest egg for you to live off of later. But Luke's original audience, the disciples listening in, they would have found this twist and turn in the parable to be quite shocking. Even in our modern setting, we're waiting for this, this rich man to drop the hammer on him, to get revenge, to turn him over to the authorities, but he doesn't. The master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, commends him for his wit. And this is the key to unlocking the parable. The key is that the master praises him for his wit and his foresight and not for the evil actions that he has done. 
So let's be clear on that. He's emphasizing and commending the wit, the cleverness of this manager and not the evil. Then in verse eight, there are these two groups that are compared, the sons of this world and the sons of light. In verse eight, it says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So this first group, the sons of this world, the name and the description of this camp, it really details who they are. So if you notice here, it says of, which is a possessive preposition. And so they are possessed by the world. Now, this is a common uh, title that is used throughout the New Testament to describe unbelievers. So this camp is the lost. They are unchurched. They are not believers. The second group is the sons of light. Once again, look at the of there, which shows possession. They are possessed by the light. They are not following the world, but they are following the light. In the gospels, Jesus calls himself the light. And so for example, in John 12, 36, Jesus said, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. So Jesus compares these two groups, those who are unbelievers and are, and are of the world and those who are believers and are sons of the light. And so if you're new here to Redeemer and you're visiting here for the first time and you're considering Jesus, the difference between a believer and unbeliever is just simply faith, faith in Christ and the work he's done on the cross. See, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God and our sin deserves, rightly deserves punishment. But Jesus was sent to die on the cross for our sins. And if we repent of those sins, we place our faith in Jesus, then we'll have everlasting life in heaven with God. We will be transferred from being sons of this world to being sons of God, sons of the light, following Jesus, instead of following the patterns of this world. And so the implication in this verse is that unbelievers tend to be more clever, more witty, more forward-thinking in their short-term worldly well-being than believers tend to be about their eternal well-being. Let me say that another way so it really sinks in. The sons of this world often put more thought, more attention, more skill, more concern into taking care of their temporal earthly well-being than believers, sons of the light, put into kingdom work and into eternal matters. If people who are unbelievers are shrewd enough to look after their best interest in relation to tomorrow, how much more should the people of God look for and care about their future in eternity and others' future in eternity? As Christians, we so often forget that we are a sent people. We are a missional people created by God for his glory. And we're supposed to be doing kingdom work, eternal work. So let's break this down a little further. And we have to be careful in how we push on different elements of the parables, but I count at least five observations we can make about this dishonest manager and the ways that he acted wisely. And we need to consider them as we go about doing kingdom work. Now I'm gonna go a little slow here because I do have some friends that like to take notes. So number one, the manager saw the issues and facts on the ground clearly. So he saw the facts on the ground clearly. He was then able to orientate himself correctly within what was happening. Number two, the manager did not shrink or retreat from opposition. He didn't retreat when all hope seemed lost. He didn't give up. And number three, 
He cared about his future. He cared about his future. He made plans, as number four, he made plans and provisions for what he knew was coming. He planned for the future. And five, it says in verse six, he went to the debtor and asked the debtor to move quickly. He moved with haste. He didn't tarry, he didn't delay, he sprung to action. Jesus then gives another spiritual lesson that grows out of the parable in verse nine. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. So that way, when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. At first, this verse is confusing. And the key to understanding it is, is to understand what unrighteous wealth means. So the CSB and the NET have done this for us and they translated unrighteous wealth for us as worldly wealth. So in this phrase, it could be also called worldly possessions. So the verse is calling us to make friends with your worldly possessions. So how exactly do we make friends with our worldly wealth? Well, we practice hospitality. We help people, we serve them. We practice lives that are generous. Generosity and hospitality and service, they are forerunners to evangelism. Now, generosity and hospitality, they're not evangelism in and of themselves, but they earn you the opportunity to share the gospel and to live real, real, real lives with people, have real relationships with people that afford you the, the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Now, you might be kind of wondering, how did I transition or why did I transition to talking about evangelism here? Notice that those friends that we're supposed to make in verse nine, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. So when we invest in making friends and doing kingdom work and you share the gospel with those, those people and they come to faith, if they precede us in death, they will be in heaven welcoming us into eternal dwellings or welcoming us into heaven. So can I challenge you a bit more? Verse nine assumes that we will have friends that are unbelievers. It, will, it assumes that we are going to have friends that don't belong to the church, right? So, so make sure you're hearing me right. Um, we should have community and fellowship with other believers, we should. But how are we going to fulfill the Great Commission if all we do is spend all of our time with believers? We have to have friends that are unbelievers. We have to constantly assess this. When was the last time that I had dinner or coffee with a friend or coworker or family member that was an unbeliever? So this is something that we have to do. We have to build in those, those uh, we call it margins, those, those empty spaces in our calendars so that we can do those things and make friends and show hospitality and generosity. So if we were to borrow the lessons from the parables before this, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, how are we to reach the lost if we're always with the sheep that are safe with a flock? See, God has a heart for the lost. Jesus has a heart for the lost. We are a sent and missional people. We are commissioned by the king. And verse nine lays out the fact that we should be making friends with those who are lost. If the dishonest manager made friends and he was corrupt, how much more should we as believers be making eternal friends? Then there are verses 10 through 13, and they really merit their own sermon, but let's look at these because they are certainly connected. Let's start with 10 through 12. 
One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And so there's the parable and there are these lessons that grow out of the parable. Now, thankfully, the parable is a little challenging and confusing, but these lessons are a little bit more easy for us to handle. The larger point of these verses is that the way we handle our resources is a matter of eternal significance. Those who are reliable and faithful in small matters will be reliable and faithful in large matters. And the same is true with dishonesty in the second part of verse 10. Those who are dishonest in small things will be dishonest in large things. And so here's the connection to the parable of the dishonest manager who is neither faithful nor honest in the small or large things. Verse 12 then brings us back into the parable and it gets real personal for us. This verse really reaches into our pocketbook, our bank accounts. As Christians, we believe and we have this biblical worldview that all that we have is a gift from God. All of our resources are gifts from God and they should be managed like a good steward who manages his resources well for the age to come. When Pastor Lawson preached through the prodigal son and when Pastor Kevin preached through the lost sheep and the lost coin, they're, they're all related here because they all have to do with God's heart for the lost. And so our resources should be spent as good stewards. We shouldn't squander our father's resources like the prodigal son. We shouldn't squander our inheritance. We should spend our resources, use our resources with a kingdom mindset that are based on eternal realities. Then in verse 13, Jesus says, no servant can have two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Money here is personified. Money operates here like an idol or a master that you can follow if you're not careful and disciplined. And so the verse paints this analogy that there are these two parallel masters that we could be following. One of them is money, and money is a poor master to follow. According to verse nine, it will fail, and wealth will inevitably fail to eternally satisfied. And if you use money wrongly, it will fail to provide eternal means. The other master we could and we should follow is the true and better rich man. He is the perfect boss. So Jesus is asking us to reflect on our allegiance, on our worship. I sometimes have my kids ring up groceries at HEB. It's part of their, their training, right? It's also me being lazy. I have them go and they scan all the barcodes and then I hand them my, my credit card and I let them check out. Now, what I found is through talking with them, they don't always connect that credit card with my bank account. They also, whenever we hit buy now on Amazon and they try to spend their allowance, they're not connecting their allowance with that buy now button on Amazon. And so often we also disconnect money from our spiritual lives. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus often connects money 
and the way we view money and the way we use money with our spiritual lives. And he welds the two of them together. Most scholars are quick to point out that one in every three of the parables has to do with money. So in this parable, we were told that there is a direct correlation with the way we view and spend money with our eternity and the eternity of others. So in closing, I used to see this parable as disconnected from the parables before it, as like a a standalone parable. But I think that Luke put it here on purpose. It further paints God's heart for the lost, Jesus's heart for the lost. So Jesus is calling us to have this eternal mindset, to have a heart for the lost. The main emphasis here is that we should use our God-given resources to make friends who are lost through generosity and service and hospitality. So that way, when they come to faith, they will be there to welcome us into eternal dwellings, into heaven. So instead of serving money, we should use money to serve others and reach the lost. And here's why. As we mentioned before, our resources are not our own. They are a gift from the Lord. So in reality, we are managers and stewards of God's resources. And we're called to be wise. We're called to be faithful and honest. We're called to be eternally minded with our resources. And those resources, they include our skills, our houses, our tables, and our time. So we should use those resources to form real relationships with unbelievers so we can share the gospel with them. And this is all ultimately based on the gospel realities that have played out in our own lives. It's all based on God's generosity towards us. See, God has been generous to us and that while we were still sinners and undeserving of grace, God sent Jesus, his only son, to die on the cross for our sins. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God has made the ultimate and the most generous gift to us by giving us his only son, Jesus, who is perfect and holy. God is generous in grace. God is generous in mercy. He is generous in forgiveness. And so since God has been generous to us through Christ, we should be generous with others. And we should use our God-given resources wisely as good stewards to make friendships that will extend into eternity. Would you pray with me as we close? Lord, thank you for your generosity through your son, Jesus. Thank you for your your generous gift of, of grace and love and forgiveness. Lord, please just cause our hearts just to burn for the lost, to help us to be eternally minded when it comes to creating and making friendships, Lord. Help us to make real relationships that lead to spiritual conversations, that lead to sharing the gospel. Lord, we need you to remind us of this because we so often forget. So Lord, just please guide us and direct us in that. Lord, we ask all these things in your son's name, amen.